Before we begin, at the time of release, we are only a few days following the recent tragic events on Lagba Omer in Meiron. Together with the entire Jewish people, the team at the Koran Podcast and all the Koran Publishers stand in grief and mourning with the friends and families of those who lost their lives. We dedicate this week's episode in their memory, Le'elui Nishmatam. When you dismiss a whole body of the work of Chazal and don't try to come to terms with it, you're cutting off your your contact with your unconscious, your collective consciousness of the Jewish people, and that's a dangerous thing to do. Shalom from Jerusalem, and welcome back uh, to another episode of the Current Podcast. Uh, I'm Alex Dripper, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Arie Grossman. Hello, Arie. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So as, uh, as you all know, we've been spending this season uh, looking at uh, different aspects of Tanakh, uh, from translation to um, using uh, the life sciences to, to study the Torah. Um, and this week we have a really uh, interesting episode planned for you. Uh, we'll be talking about the use of Midrashim uh, whilst learning Tanakh. Um, so actually, you know what, Arie? Here's a question for you. Uh, what's your favourite Midrash? Yeah, after some thought, I think is there's the Gemara in Brachot in the last parak that talks about that Moshe asks the question of how tall Moshe was. It talks about that Moshe was ten amot tall. He took an axe ten amot long. He jumped up ten amot ten cubits, and he hit Og Melachabashan in the ankle and killed him. Um, and just this vision of a massively tall Moshe jumping with a massively tall axe, jumping up a massive height and hitting Og in the ankle, and that being what killed him, always uh, I found um, interesting and uh, and exciting to think about. How about you, Alex? What's your favourite? I'm not sure I do have a favourite midrash. Um, you know, I, I do enjoy learning them. Um, I do think it's important to sort of make sure that you're aware that it's a midrash whilst you're learning. I think one that I always sort of tickles me uh, when it comes up because it's so often confused uh, with something that's actually found in the verses themselves uh, is one of several in the Megillah that, that could, uh, in Megillah Esther, that could fit that description. Um, when Haman is leading Mordechai through the streets on Ahasuerus's horse um, and his daughter sort of sticks her head out the window and throws a bucket of unpleasantness uh, on her father's head, um, which sort of like, it does, as in learning it as a Midrash, it sort of gives, gives the reader um, maybe a, a better sense of, of what was going through Haman's head uh, or on Haman's head um, and it's just an interesting one and sort of shows the flavour that uh, Chazal um, added to the text so I think that yeah, that one's always a fun one to talk about um, but we for this week's episode spoke to a couple of people who I think could conservatively be called experts uh, in Midrash um, and asked them about how we should approach uh, using Midrashim whilst learning Torah and learning Tanakh. Uh, yes, we were joined by Simi Peters, who is the author of Learning to Read Midrash. 
um, as well as another book on Midrash that's currently in the works. Uh, She's been teaching at Nishmat for over 25 years, um, teaching Nach uh, with a particular focus also on Midrash. Um, We're also joined by Rabbi Nathaniel Helfgott, who is the rabbi of Congregation Nativat Shalom in Teaneck, uh, as well as a teacher at SAR High School um, and Yeshiva Chovei Torah, and most importantly is the author of Mikra and Meaning, um, published by Magid Books. So let's get straight into it. We are delighted to be joined now by Rav Nati Halfgott. Uh, Rav Halfgott, thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here with you, with Koren, online with uh, Alex and Arya. It's wonderful to see you. Um, we're, we're excited to be here. Um, so to get the ball rolling, um, I think you know a, a good question to start with would be just to sort of frame, uh, frame the conversation. Um, how would you define both Midrash, what is Midrash, um, and what would you call, let's say, uh, the opposite or the contrasting approach to learning Tanakh, uh, you know, without or with or without uh, Midrashim. So, you know, often when we, we talk about the Pshat and Drash or Pshat and Midrash, so there's always uh, the quip that uh, Professor Nechamalevitz would often say that, you know, Pshat is what I say, Drash is what you say, you know, which was a kind <laughs> of cute way of saying that many people use the word uh, drash in a more pejorative way as, you know, less uh, accurate or less truth or less really what the text means. And I think that's not really a, a fair assessment uh, when we talk about Midrash. Pshat and Drash, since, you know, the Middle Ages, when those two categories really were sharpened uh, in the, in the, in the, in the uh, writings of the Rishonim, like Rashi and Rashbam and Ramban and the great Rishonim uh, really referred to two different methodologies of how one approaches the text. Um, and, you know, Pshat is uh, the way Rabbi David Svi Hoffman often formulated is what does, what did the text mean in its original context as understood by the first audience that heard it? And many of the, that first audience they may have understood the nuances of um, biblical Hebrew and references that maybe you and I living, you know, 5,000 years later don't understand or 3,000 years later don't understand. And so Pshat is an attempt to try to uncover to the best of our ability what was the the original meaning of the words of the text using uh, as many tools as we can, which will include um, literary tools, which will include comparative language. So the more we know about ancient languages from the time of the Torah uh, in the countries surrounding Eretz Israel and the areas that Am Israel lived, the more we can uncover what a text means. So that's pshat and pshutoshal mikra, and therefore we use all those tools to the best of our ability, also to try to figure out what were the literary conventions that the Torah used. And very often you can figure them out from looking at the Torah. The Torah itself is one of the best interpreters of the Torah. You know, Nach will give us an insight into, oh yeah, this phenomenon happens a lot. And oh, this is what's going on in this part of the text because we see it happens 50 other times in the text. Midrash, of course, uses its own 
uh, techniques going beyond what we would call the plain sense of the text to try to figure out, you know, what is the message of the text beyond the plain sense of the text, given the fact that we believe that it's a divine text. And as Chazal say, you know, uh, excuse me, so a text can have uh, multivocal, multivalent meanings, um, both for that generation, but also for many other generations. And the Midrash has its own tools that go beyond what we would call conventional uh, literary, you know, tools of how you understand a text in its original context. Uh, and some of those tools sometimes will uncover what, you know, Nechama Leibovitz called Omek Pshuto Shamikra, gives us the ultimate value and meaning of the text, but sometimes it also goes in other directions and teaches us other lessons. I also would add that when we talk about Midrash, we are talking about a whole range of things. You know, sometimes Midrash will use the text like rabbis today, will use the text as a springboard to get across a homiletical message, a moral message, an important message for the Jews of the time that the Baal HaMidrash was talking to, and also a, a, an eternal message that our you know, ed, educational, moral, musr, whatever term you want to use. And so sometimes, so I, you know, Midrash has, is, is on a continuum. Some Midrashim are trying to address lacunae in the text and an exegetical problem in the text. That's on one extreme, which is, comes very close to what we would call shot interpretation. Now, you may like the, the Midrashic answer. You feel it's convincing. You feel it's not convincing. There's too much evidence introduced that's not in the text. And on, that's on one continuum. One, on the other end of the continuum are purely homiletical, you know, thing, you know, shatim, which are simply using the text as a hook like in halacha, like what we call asmachta. So too in Agada, we also have asmachta. The rabbis are trying to learn a lesson about assimilation, about Jewish continuity, about Jewish uniqueness, about all kinds of machshava topics. Okay, to give you an example, when it says in the beginning of Shmot that, you know, uh, va, va, you know, va, va yirbu, va yatsmu, otam. And the Midrash, there in sites in Midrash Rabbah, what does it mean? The plain sense is the Jews filled the land, they were very numerous, they prospered, etc. They spread out throughout the land. Um, and on a shot level, there may be a literary echo there to Breshit to the creation of the world, reminds us of Pru Urvu Umilu So the microcosm of Am Yisrael is parallel to the macrocosm of the world. There's beautiful literary stuff, you could say. But the Midrash says, that the Jewish people were, they were all over the place. Now, I don't want to shock anybody who, who hasn't studied history, but there were no circuses and there were no theaters in ancient Egypt. Circuses and theaters is a reality of first century Rome. When the Bali Hamidrash are writing, and therefore they use the language and the imagery of Rome and the reality of the circuses and theaters of Rome, and they're talking to the Jews in first century Rome about assimilation, and they're telling them, you know, don't go into those places. So that's an example of, you know, using the text as a springboard to 
for, for, for a beautiful, important homiletical message. So that's the other extreme. And in between, there are all kinds of other midrashim that are mix of exegesis together with, you know, uh, ideas together with flights of fancy. And again, the midrash doesn't see itself as as bound by what we would call classical rational thought, and it connects themes and texts from again, it has its own methodology, which is not always what we would call the methodology of the plain sense of the text. Now, I want to just make it clear. What does plain sense of the text mean? Plain sense isn't necessarily the, um, the literal. Sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that pshat means literal, but that's not always true. When you have a metaphor, the literal translation is not the pshat. It's, it's, it's a metaphor, okay? So the literal translation is not always the pshat. That's why Rashi sometimes says, ufshuto kimashma'o. Mashmao means as it sounds, what we would call literal, meaning that there's times when pshuto lo kemashmao. So that I talked enough for so far. <laughs> okay, so I mean, given that um, obviously you're coming to us live from from school, you're, you're an SAR. Yes, I'm an SAR high school. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, looking at those two different um, methodologies you mentioned of of midrash and and pshat, what would be the sort of pros and cons of teaching with? let's say, a pshat-based approach versus a midrashic approach? Look, I think that, you know, first and foremost, for our kids, we have to first, they have to learn the text of the chumash. And the pshat is the first level that you have to do. It also can engage them uh, in a way because kids can be trained in using the methodology of pshat, of finding literary connections, learning how to see patterns, learning how to see how one story plays off another story, learning how to see the milamancha, the key word that repeats itself. And it's very exciting for kids. They can be trained and they can become masters at it. The midrashic approach is harder in the sense that you can't really, you know, you can understand what the midrash is doing. We don't do our own midrashim anymore, as opposed to the to try to figure out what the text is saying. I also think um, part of pshat learning is to see a story in its totality. Very often Midrash is very atomistic. It only looks at this specific word and takes it out of context and doesn't necessarily, often, it doesn't necessarily read a story in its wholeness. Many of the Rishonim um, were very good at the atomistic, but not as much in terms of reading a story its, its entirety, except for the Ramban. The Ramban is really the, the one who really, really um, often would show us a narrative arc and gave us insights into a whole story. And, and part of the Pshat approach forces a kid to deal with a story in its totality and deal with a safer in its totality. The kind of questions that we ask from, from a more pshat literary, what we call literary theological approach, are these kind of meta questions. What is the purpose of Sefer Shmuel? What is the, what is the narrative arc of the Joseph and his brother's story? How do the characters develop? You know, so that is a lot of kinds of questions that weren't necessarily asked directly by many of the classical Mephorshim and certainly by many of the classical Midrashim. And first and foremost, the first thing we need to do, you know, 
the text of the Chumash is Dvar Hashem. Before we get to what Chazal or the Rishonim said, we first have to engage with God's direct word, which is Tanakh. You know, Nechama, again, I'm quoting Nechama a lot, even though certain things I disagree with her, but Nechama would often say, you know, we, we first have to learn Chumash like Rashi, without Rashi. Just like Rashi learned the Chumash, he first learned the Chumash. You try to understand the Chumash. You try to use the best techniques that you have in understanding language, syntax, um, what, you know, um, you know and, and all those and techniques and, and tools at your disposal to try to get at what the text means on its first level. After that, you can also talk about what other uh, messages were understood by the tradition from this text. Also, you know, especially, thank God, we today live um, with uh, Baruch Hashem, a state of Israel, and we live with the fact that we can now go and actually see uh, many of the places um, that Tanakh speaks about, and we can understand better the realia of what it means that, you know, this battle took place here and they were here, and we can understand what was happening and why it's happening, that also connects us very much to, it can connect us to Jewish history, it can connect us to Israel, it can connect us to the land of Israel, it can connect us to our heritage, it can connect us to a lot of the reality of both the modern state of Israel and, and the reality of what it was like uh, for, the, for the Jews and the, and the Israelim who lived in the Tkufat of Tanakh. And Tanakh can come alive. Um, and it, 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 it's not a series of Vortlach, that you say it's Shalashudis, but it's a book with a purpose. I understand what Sefer Shmuel is about and the tensions around power and monarchy and values and what does it mean to, to and, and family and power struggles. And so a lot of that can come, doesn't have to come exclusively from a Pshat orientation, but a Pshat orientation can often allow you to delve more into that than an exclusively Midrashic uh, approach at the same time, as I've said before. Um, I love learning Midrash also, and Midrash can often give you, you know, make you stop and think about ideas that you didn't think about. Some of them just purely, you know, Musser and homiletical, but also sometimes the Midrash may notice something anomalous in the text and give its solution, but it'll also help you think about a solution on a more Pshat level and something that you may not have thought about. Um, so, I mean, you said, you know, that the first the first stage should be, you know, learning chumash, as in learning learning the words on the page. Um, right. Which, you know, I, I certainly would have a hard, a hard time arguing against. Um, <laughs> um, I'd, I'd be interested to hear uh, to hear your your thoughts on a phenomenon that I think is is probably universal, um, which is the we find ourselves in a situation where many, if not most people um, at, have some area of their knowledge of Tanakh or Chumash where they have confused what we're calling Pshat and Midrash, whether it's the various stories of, of the, of, you know, right. Abraham's origin story or bits of Megillah Esther right, come to right. mind as well. You know, there's all these sorts of Midrashim that sort of have crept into people's understanding of what they think is Pshat, they just aren't there. Um, I'm right. interested to hear sort of how you think we've reached that, and and you know what you know what the solution is. How how do we combat it? I mean, we combat it by learning more, but you know how how we reach that stage. Right. So 
again, I think that there's a couple of things just to unpack what your question and, and to respond to it. You're correct that there are many people, even though it's, I think, better than when I was a kid. Um, uh, when I was a kid, you know, the standard approach to learning uh, Chumash was, you know, a Pasuk and a Rashi, a Pasuk and a Rashi, and a Medrash and a Medrash and a Pasuk and a Rashi. It was not only pedagogically very, um, I don't think ideal is to be charitable, um, but it uh, it wasn't really, it didn't really yield a lot. Um, and and it gave a lot of confusion um, to a lot of kids because the teacher, the Rebbe, the Mora didn't always make the clear distinction. This is Pshutel Shamikra. There's this is the midrash that's been added by Chazal, and it was all a mishmash. So, so the first thing is things have to be clear. What are you teaching? What are you not teaching? What is in the text? What's not in the text? I think that's like the first thing to make sure that the kids know what's in the text. But it's not just in terms of midrash. It's also a mistake people make about when you ask the average kid, you know, in Sefer Shmuel, why could David not build the temple? So the kid will say, because he had blood on his hands. It never says that in Sefer Shmuel. It says that in Direi Ayamim. In Sefer Shmuel, it gives a very different kind of reason for why David. So it's very important to have every as, as clear as possible what is in the text in front of me, what's not in the text in front of me. That's number one. What's in the text, what I'm adding to the text. Second of all, especially as kids get older and more, more knowledgeable, in general, I believe that if you teach a, a Midrash that has no anchor in the text at all, then you have to try to explain where the rabbis saw that in the text. Was it a literary hook? What is it, was it a philosophical issue? Or was it a combination? And if they did. So I'll give you just a quick example. I wrote an article in my book about this. Um, you mentioned the Abraham story, the origin story of Abraham with the iconoclast, Abraham shattering the idols, which is not at all found in the biblical text at all. The Parshat Noach ends with Abraham, his father taking him on the way to Eretz Yisrael. Then his father dies. And then HaKadosh Baruch Hu appears and says, Lech lecha Where does it mention that Abraham um, found God, that Abraham destroyed the idols? So there is no story about Abraham about smashing the idols. But it is interesting, if you open your mind a little bit, there is a story of a biblical hero who does smash idols. And that's the story of Gidon. If you look in the book of Shoftim, you'll find that there's a story about a man who has a father who worships idols, whose son destroys the idols, as in put in danger, and is protected. And so all of a sudden you say to yourself, whoa. Chazal borrowed elements of the Gidon story and put them into Abraham's origin story. Why did they feel entitled to borrow from Gidon and put it into Abraham? And then you start to look in the story in Shoftim and you find many uh, phrases that seem to parallel Gidon to Abraham. And then you start to ask yourself, oh, so if Gidon is like Abraham, for all kinds of interesting reasons, then maybe Chazal felt, well, if Gidon is like Avraham, maybe Avraham is like Gidon. 
and you start to see the mind of the Midrashist working, the textual connections, the plays on words and stuff. So if I'm going to teach a Midrash like that, especially in high school, I have to try to see where Chazal were driving. Obviously, they want to, obviously, Abraham can't just show up on the scene. Heroes in antiquity and in modernity, we need origin stories for heroes. But why that specific origin story? Why Avraham was like this and not like that? Then you start to get into, oh, what are the literary connections? Where did Chazal see connections between Avram and Gidon? And then you have, okay, so there's, there's a lot of interesting things you can do. And even in Midrashim, there's a lot of interesting things you can do. Once you've left the realm of Pshat, to talk about, you know, some of the Midrashim say Avram discovered God when he was three. Some of the Midrashim say Avram discovered God when he was 40. Now that's two very different pictures of what kind of individual Avram was and how he found God and how do you come to God. So there's a lot you can do, but that's, but again, if you're going to teach something like that, you have to teach it in a sophisticated way that tries to get teased at why. And sometimes if you can't do that, it's better not to teach it. If you can't explain exegetically why there are Midrashim that say that Rivka was three years old when she married Yitzchak, then educationally you shouldn't be teaching that because it raises many more problems in the mind of a 21st century kid than it solves. And unless you can explain, and there is an explanation, I don't mean of exegetically what that is based on. And you can talk about it. It's based on certain assumptions that the Akedah, the death of Sarah happened right after the Akedah, and Sarah was certain. You know, there's, but unless you can show and explain it, it's not worth teaching it. Stam. Stam to say Rivka was three years old. What do you gain by that? You simply cause too much. Okay, and it's not an essential part of Judaism to believe whether that Rivka was three or not three. But it is, if you're going to teach that, you have to try to show in context what led Chazal to that conclusion from the text. So how would you, how would you advise a, a teacher of Tanakh, whether it's in high school or in even an elementary school, maybe yeshiva, how would you advise them to balance that, you know, giving their students that knowledge of Peshat and text skills, uh, skills with the Shutta Shomikra, with also learning Midrashim as well. So again, I think that you need, just like anything else, you need training. You need to have a good training. You need to read. Um, whenever young teachers approach me, I give them a bibliography of stuff to read about how to approach texts and how to approach Midrash and how to, and you need to have good training. I don't think that simply learning Baba Kama and, uh, and, you know, and, and, and Yavamos, which are, I learned Baba Kam and Yavamos, and I, and I think it's important to learn Baba Kam, but that alone does not make a good Tanakh teacher. Just like if just because you know math doesn't mean that you're going to be a good math teacher for a 10th grade class. You also need training in pedagogy, you need training in decision making, how you're going to balance, you need mentoring, you need to read seriously, you can't just come out of the fact that you listen to Parsha Sashavua for 20 years and think you're going to be a good teacher. Just like any discipline, you need training, 
You need thinking, you need reflection, you need time to make mistakes, you need time to get better, you need to see good teaching, you need to read, you need to be trained well to be a really good teacher of Tanakh, or a really good teacher of Gemara, or a really good teacher of any subject. You need to recognize that you that when you're walking into a classroom, you're making choices all the time. And the choices should not be by the seat of your pants. And they shouldn't be winging it, but they should be thoughtful in a Gemara class, in a Chumash class, in a Navi class. What am I teaching? Why am I teaching it? How am I going to teach it? What questions should I assume an average modern Orthodox kid living in Cleveland or in Yerushalayim or in Teaneck or in Riverdale is going to ask? And how am I ready to deal with it or approach it? And what you know, what background I have to do that and to take your to take your profession seriously, professionally. And that requires thinking, reading, studying, practicing and mentoring from good Tanakh teachers that have been in the field. Uh, and with a slightly different hat on, I mean, Alex and I both have elementary school age kids at home and younger, and I'm sure many of our listeners do. How about at home? We know we're teaching our kids parish over you know, the Shabbat table. How, how do we make sure we kind of get that right balance between Peshat and Midrash at home? I think, first of all, you, first of all, you, sh- you need to be led by your kids a little bit, what, they, what they're seeing in the text, but also to get them into the habit of training them to read a text carefully. The most important thing is to read carefully. Let them see what repeats itself in the text a lot. What questions are, what questions do they have when they read the text? What are their first questions that they see? And, and to think about them and, oh, you know, that question is a great question and the text doesn't seem to answer it, but maybe we can answer and maybe other people have suggested an answer. You know, when Avraham is walking to the Akeda, when does he first talk? When does he not talk? Does the fact that he not talk, what does that tell you? Does it tell you something? What would you expect him? What do you think he's thinking about? I mean, these are all questions that are silent in the text that maybe on purpose, the text wants to be silent so that we focus on the act rather than what's what he's thinking. But What's he thinking? Well, maybe that's an interesting question. What do you think he's thinking? What would you be thinking? And then we can talk about Midrashim that talk about what he's thinking. Because the Midrash is trying to solve, you know, answer. What would a person who's going through such a a traumatic, um, you know, mitzvah, what would he be thinking about? What he might not be thinking about, you know? So, again, I personally, you know, tried, I raised my little, my kids are, you know, they're, they're either... Teenage, they're college, teenage, and tweens by now. So yeah, that's the way when I tried to learn with them to get them into the habit of just, you know, reading the text first, unalloyed. What do they see? What do they see repeated? What do they feel is redundant? What do they feel is missing? What do, then you become sensitive to language, and then you become sensitive to the questions of the parshanim, and you become sensitive ultimately to some of the midrashim. And still, you have to also be age appropriate. Obviously, you can't necessarily explain every single thing um, and all the methodologies to a five-year-old or an eight-year-old that you can to an 18-year-old. And, 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 and then you make choices. Does it pay to teach something when, if you can't explain it well, maybe I'll do something else, you know? 
I mean, uh, perhaps you aren't answered this already, and <clears throat> this might be a bit of a leading question, but you know, no one's—we're not being recorded. So, um, do you think perhaps there, there may have been a, a shift, um, if not a shift, but maybe a, ri- a risk of going too far in the other direction of of ignoring midrashim, of saying like we're going to focus on the pshutah shemikra, and and you know. I don't want to confuse my child and say, well, we'll just ignore the midrash for now, or I can't accept it, so we ignore the midrash for now, and we, do we run a risk of sort of sidelining it altogether, or, you know, do you think that there's, that we're getting t- towards some sort of balance? I think it's hard to imagine, given the fact that we live um, in, if you live in an orthodox community where kids are bombarded with, you know, they're reading, you know, and they, the, the chumash they pick up in shul, at least in America, the you know the art the art scroll um, stone chumash. I don't know what what the equivalent is in Israel. Uh, the standard you know chumash. Maybe they don't have a chumash with any commentary. They're going to be getting a nice diet of medrash anyway. So I don't really feel that that's a real. But you're right that there are people who are concerned that some of those kind of classical uh, material, uh, classical that shaped the context, uh, might be missing. Uh, Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein uh, wrote a little bit about that in one of his pieces. And uh, Rabbi Yaki Blau has also uh, been concerned with that as well. And I think, yeah, you have to be careful. I I certainly don't believe the idea that you simply ignore and never look at a Midrash and never look at a Parshan and just, you know, only read the text and only read the text and only read the text. Obviously, I don't think any of of the great uh, Pashtanim in our day, uh, not Rav Yol Binun, and not uh, Rav Yaakov Meidan, and Rav Bazak, and David Silber, and 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 <coughs> and my good friend Yoni Grossman. I don't think any of them um, ignore the classical Parshanut. They focus as much more on the text, but they'll use classical Parshanut and Midrashim uh, in terms of their understanding of the text. But you're right; there are people who can go too far, like in anything, and ignore, you know, and, and again, I think that uh, you have to have that balance. I, I think it's, I don't think, I think it's highly unlikely that kids will grow up never hearing, uh, because, you know, so much of Orthodox culture is saturated with so many classical midrashim and classical traditional gemarot that they're going to come across it I think that if we teach it in a sophisticated way, they'll appreciate it much more and not, God forbid, say, oh, that's just Chazal saying stupid things. We don't want Chaz V'Shalom, anybody ever saying that. As a good teacher of mine once said, not every Midrash has to be taken literally, but every Midrash has to be taken seriously. And seriously means to try to understand what's the agenda of the Midrash, how is it reading the text, what's it trying to convey, what it what it what anomaly it saw in the text and things of that nature. Uh, well, on that thought, uh, we just want to thank you, Ravnati Halfgott. Thank you so much for joining us on the Corin podcast. Uh, I appreciate uh, appreciate being involved with the Corin podcast, and good luck on everything. Uh, it's been great having you on, and uh, Bezra Hashem, have you back on in the future. Thank you. We are delighted to be joined by Simi Peters. Simi, thank you so much for joining us on the Corin podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Simi. It's great to have you on. Um, we've just finished a conversation with Rav Nati Halfgott, uh, who gave us a pretty 
clear working definition of, of what midrash is. Um, I suppose just to start us off, could you let us know what it is about midrashim, about learning midrash, um, that really has captured your imagination, um, making it the focus of your professional life uh, for the last you know, 25 plus years? Well, actually, Bamakor, I'm a teacher of Nach. I started teaching Nach, and I, I think, um, you know, much as I love teaching Chumash, and I really do love teaching Chumash, I started with Nach, um, which is something I'm very passionate about. Um, but whatever I was teaching, whether it was Chumash or Nach, it was very clear to me what to do with the Parshanim. I mean, I didn't always understand everything I read, but I could explain to my students how to read Parshanim and how to get to the bottom of what the Parshanim were doing. They're very structured. They're very, they, they present their uh, positions in, in, you know, very linear prose argumentation. In that respect, um, Parshanut was not a big leap for me. Um, when it came to Midrash, I loved Midrash. In fact, with Nach, you, there's a lot of, there are a lot of things in Nach you cannot teach without Midrash. But when I tried to explain my sort of intuitive readings of Midrash to my students, I couldn't, I couldn't really do it. Um, I couldn't help them understand how to do what I do. That's one of my focuses, my foci as a teacher, is to teach my students how to do what I do, to give them tools for independent study of text. And when it came to Midrash, I, I couldn't do that. So as a girl who grew up in a base Yaakov educational system, I, I learned a lot of Midrash. I had a tremendous amount of exposure to Midrash. Anybody who learns Rashi or uh, other Parshanim, there's a lot of Midrash uh, alluded to in these as secondary sources. Um, but I couldn't really explain what I was doing and that troubled me. So when I had an opportunity to study, um, to take a, two years off for a fellowship, a Jerusalem fellowship, I decided to make that my focus. And that's when I started to read some academic works on Midrash. I was very much influenced by Yona Frankel, Professor Yona Frankel, Zal, and uh, others, but mostly by him. Um, though I don't think he'd approve of the way I teach Midrash, but that's a separate story. Um, and I started to really focus on learning Midrash because people don't learn Midrash. They read Midrash, as I said, in secondary sources. Midrash is fascinating. It is aesthetically extremely pleasing and it's powerful. And uh, once you're hooked, you're hooked. You're just totally hooked. You mentioned before um, sort of different styles of Midrash, Halacha and Agadah. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that, the different methods, the different styles of Midrash and what they contribute to our understanding of Tanakh? Well, um, there's a lot of Midrash in, in Gemara, right? In the Mish there's some in the Mishnah, but there's even more in the Gemara. Midrash, uh, Midrash Halakha and Midrash Agata share the characteristic of very, very close reading in the text, paying very close attention to all sorts of um, elements in the text that we tend to ignore, especially when we learn texts in translation. The grammar, the syntax, the style, violations of, of our expectations in biblical style. So um, Midrash Halakha and Midrash Agadah focus very minutely on the text, like almost down to prepositions or 
or uh, you know grammatical anomalies or syntactic violations, and that's true across the board for midrash agada and midrash halacha. The difference is that midrash halacha addresses the psukim that deal with halacha, and midrash agada deals with the psukim that are narrative in the biblical text. And so some of the freedom that you see and the sort of looseness that you see and the willingness to sort of like take, take ideas uh, beyond the immediate uh, plain sense of the text in Midrash comes from the fact that you're dealing with narrative and narrative is not normative. There are other differences in style. I don't know, this might be too technical and boring, but there are other differences in style that have to do with things like how early or late a Midrash is. So the earlier the midrash, the more terse and concise and condensed. The later the midrash, the more it sort of blends psukim and midrash, right? So that's one difference between Tanhuma and Breshi Rabbah, for example. But again, those are those are some technical differences in style. I mean, uh, sorry, is there a, I mean, are, we, are you aware of a reason as to why that might be? Like why the earlier ones so much more concise? Is this to do with sort of how they were transmitted or is it just a, you know, a quirk of... of... That's, that's really an interesting um, source of speculation. I mean, academics would tell you, there are people who would argue that there's an Ur Midrash, right? There's, an, there's the original moment at which a particular Midrash, I'm, I'm speaking about Midrash Agadah because I know nothing significant about Midrash Halakha, but that there's sort of like, there was the occasion upon which the first Midrash about X, right, uh, appeared in the Beit Midrash. And a lot of academic work is the attempt to reconstruct that or Midrash, so to speak, from all the different girsaot. So inevitably, when you tell a midrash over, to use a very non-technical term, right? When you like, when you repeat a midrash in, in the context of your drasha or your teaching or your whatever, you're gonna alter it in all sorts of ways. So what, what happened, for example, in Tanhuma is it was more in the style of lecture. I would argue that Breshit Rabbah is more in the style of limud, of like, you know, technical teaching you know, and again, there's a lot of academic speculation. Uh, these kinds of midrashim are talking to the hamon am, to the to the to hoy poloi, right? To the to the common folk. And these kinds of midrashim appeared only in the Beit Midrash. I, I'm a little skeptical of those distinctions, but it's also not something I'm a big expert in. Um, what I do is I take each text in and of itself and teach it. And one of the things that I've discovered that is very fascinating and uh, is the subject of Be'ezrat Hashem, my next book, is the degree to which the uh, version of a midrash is determined by the biblical text it's relating to. So you have like, for example, seven or eight versions, maybe six or seven versions of the Bishar Nashim Tzidkaniyot midrash, the midrash about the women in Mitzrayim and their heroism, and depending on whether it's the beginning of Shemot Rapa, the middle of Shemot Rapa, or it's in Tanhuma dealing with the building of the Mishkan, the Midrashim undergo transformations as the fundamental idea gets linked to a particular biblical text or a response to a particular biblical text, if that makes sense. So you mentioned before um, that there are certain texts in Nach 
that can't be understood without midrash. So I'm curious. To, I'm curious to hear some examples of, you know, what are texts in Nach that we can't understand them without midrash. Okay, so if you take a look, for example, at the David Goliath story, right? Shmuel al Perkut Zion. Okay, at the end of that story, as David is walking away, walking back to Shaul with Goliath's head in his hand. Um, you get a flashback to Shaul watching David walk out to defeat Goliath, turning to Abner Ben-Ner and saying to him, Ben mi zehana Avner, whose son is this lad, Avner? And Avner says, I, I don't know if I'm quoting exactly, but I don't know. <laughs> I swear to you, the king, I do not know. And then when David approaches Shaul and Shaul says to him, Ben like, who are you? Who's, whose son are you? David says, Ben Yishaya, Ben Yishai something like that. Okay. Now, the previous parak describes David becoming Shaul's arms bearer. And he sends a letter to David's father, Yishai, saying, Send me your son, David. I want to keep him with me permanently right? Okay, something's going on there, right? Now, if you're, a, if you're a Bible, if you take the Bible, uh, the biblical criticism approach, right? What, what are you going to do with that? You're going to say there's two versions that got glommed together. If you don't want to take that approach, which I think is problematic for many, many reasons, not least of which is that, okay, I'm not going to get into Bible criticism. That's Josh Berman's thing, and he's, he's really good at that. But, um, if you want, if as Chazal want to make sense of that, then they have to explain what's what's going on over here. And that brings us to the Gemara and Yivamot in which David's ancestry is coming into play here. Shaul has looked, has looked at him, realized he's acting like a king. He sees him as a potential replacement to himself, right? And he says, whoa, 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 whoa. I need to know who this guy is. Right, not beyond the. Of course, he knows who his father is. Is he from the? Is he from the uh, messianic line? Is he not from the messianic line? And the Gemara goes into a whole long discussion of that, and it's a long, a beautiful, and interesting midrash. There are many interesting elements in it. It would be really hard to understand that story without Gemara and Yivamot. Um. So, I think exactly in in the modern Orthodox sphere, um, there's. Um, a particular attitude towards midrashim, people sort of uh, are uncomfortable learning midrashim or, or sort of a little bit dismissive. A um, little so dismissive? That would be <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, yes. I, I was trying to be polite. Um, <laughs> people are incredibly dismissive um, about learning midrashim. Um, yeah. I, so w why do you think that is? I mean, particularly, I mean, particularly in the modern Orthodox community, but in general, why why are people dismissive of of learning midrash or you know uh, uh, wary of uh, incorporating it into Tanakh or Chumash study? Okay, so I think one of the reasons for this is because um, the more modern Orthodox you are, the more Western you are. And Western students of Western culture or uh, inhabitants of Western culture, um, citizens of Western culture, if you will, are used to sophisticated arguments being clothed in linear prose argumentation. That's what they're used to, 
right? So in other words, what you have is you have the, let's, let's take the Ramban as the antithesis of a Midrashic style, okay? So the Ramban has incredibly sensitive and nuanced readings of, of Torah. Um, uh, the Ramban is a, a giant in, in every respect, right? In, in, and if you study the Ramban, you, you really get a tremendous insight into how the Torah works, but the way that he structures it is he asks a question, he states his question, he, uh, argue, he argues his position on the basis of, here's my question, here's answer A, B, and C, here's your presumed argument against that answer, here's my anticipation of your argument. It's very linear, right? It's clear, it's linear prose argumentation, it's like the way it would be if you were writing an article for a course on, I don't know, sociology or something like that. The style, I mean, it's very different in certain other ways, but it's very linear and it's very clear. And the language is extremely uh, well thought out. And there are very few tangents. And where there are tangents, the tangents come back very and relate very directly to the, the central argument. Chazal, uh, it's not just that they're reading the text extremely closely. The Ramban does that too. And I'm, you know, I think that's not the issue. The issue is that Chazal's mode of discourse, the way that they feed you, their incredibly sophisticated readings of the text is highly literary. It's metaphor, allegory, symbolism, story, parable, hyperbole things that have to be unpacked to really understand. So it, unless you've had a good teacher or um, you know, a misora of really taking Chazal seriously in this respect, you're going to see a story and sometimes a crazy story, a fantastical story. And you're going to say, that makes no sense and I don't understand it. So I'm gonna put it, file it under the category, it's just a midrash. Okay, um, they would never do that with a daf gemara. They wouldn't say that's silly, but that's because there's a derech limud for gemara, right? In Talmud, there's been a long, and uh, I think uh, the Rashbam points this out. Klal Yisrael has developed a way of unpacking what seems like the very nonlinear argumentation that you sometimes find in halacha and gemara, but when it comes to when it comes to uh, Midrash Agadah, which is far more literary, it just sort of gets filed under not serious, or we don't have to take it seriously. So I think what people need to learn to do is to understand that you have to learn a Midrash with the same rigor that you bring to um, a halachic discussion in the Gemara, for example. You can't, you can't dismiss Chazal Chazal, I don't know if I invented this term, I tried to figure this out or I read it somewhere, but Chazal are the vast unconscious of the Jewish people. Everything that we have learned to understand about Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, Torah Shabbat Peh, our, our place in the world, every area in Machshevet Yisrael has some basis in Chazal, right? And when you dismiss a whole body of the work of Chazal and don't try to come to terms with it, you're, you're cutting off your, your contact with your unconscious, your collective consciousness of the Jewish people, 
And that's a dangerous thing to do. That's, I mean, any Freudian would tell you that, right? Or Jungian, right? You can't cut yourself off from the sort of the great vast, you know, uh, source of what is most creative and most um, both intellectually, spiritually, and emotionally um, nourishing in yourself. Right. I, so, I mean, uh, a question that I've sort of been itching to ask um, is, you know, if, at the same time as being very dismissive um, of learning Midrashim, how have we gotten to a point where I would say, you know, large swaths of, of just uh, not just the modern community but you know all, all that every sort of uh jewish jewishly engaged any torah learning community have um where they, they're mixing up midrashim and pshat so for example you know um abraham smashing terach's idols is not in the pshat many people think it is uh you know the way that create yamsuf looked you know whether it was the you know 12 tunnels that you know things like that or Vashti having a tail in the Megillah mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. things like Esther being green. All these different Midrashim sort of people confuse. And I've been fortunate enough to teach at fairly high level, um, you know, Jewish institutions um, where students were like blown away when I mentioned one of these things being a Midrash. And like, what do you mean it's the Pshat? And so you hand them a Tanakh and I'm like, well, point to it. Um, how, have we, how have we reached that stage? I mean, what, what's been going on, especially in a community that is so dismissive of Midrashim? Like how... What do you think has, has led us to, to this point? Well, I think I think one of the things that it, you're really asking here a question about the sociology of education in the Jewish community, and you're asking a question also about Jewish intellectual history, in a, in a sense. Okay. Now, first of all, I take one issue. I take issue with one part of your question. I think you say people are mixing up midrashim and pshat, and I'm going to subst- I'm going to change your question a little bit. People are mixing up psukim and pshat and, and midrash. Pshat is not pshat is not psukim, right? Psukim right. are the actual biblical text, whatever it might be. Pshat, or what we call pshat, and I, I prefer to call parshanut, is is not an attribute of the psukim, but it is the reader's attempt to make sense of the psukim. Okay, should I say that again? Or is that clear? No, 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 no. I'm gonna put my hands up. It's, that's that's uh, my inaccurate uh, use of language. Okay, so there are psukim that we read. And from a very young age, uh, children learn midrashim, you know, they go to Gan. The Gananot <laughs> Gan of Klal Yisrael, the Nashim Tzitkaniot, uh, the Gananot who are the first people to introduce our children to, to Torah. Um, bear a lot of responsibility for this. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. When they tell the story of Abraham Avinu in the partial class, they tell the story about the breaking of the idols, or they tell the story about Megillah Dester Vashti has a tail, or did you know that Matan Torah, there was no, the Midrash, it's a, what I call a phantom chazal, the Midrash about, uh, about Harsinai being the most humble mountain, haven't found it yet, I've looked very hard. There's some sort of version, kind of, but some Ganenet made that up, probably in need, in response to some educational need in, in Gan, which is fine, you know. And what happens is children, it is a Girsati Yankuta. There's the child, child's eye version of the first time we encounter the biblical text, and that is orally transmitted by either parents telling Bible stories to their children or, or uh, 
you know, Gananot or the, you know, their early, their first grade Rebbe, whatever it might be, teaching them these stories orally. Uh, the problem isn't that these stories get mixed up into the text when children are very young. I think it's, it's powerful and it's beautiful and it makes it accessible and it's more interesting. The problem is we never revisit those texts later in a more mature or adult manner. And that's a failure of our educational system. That is the Ganena did her job great. The trouble is we didn't do our job later better in, um, in saying, okay, you know, Nechama used to told a story. Um, I, I studied with Nechama Leibovitz for about three years, which was a fascinating, really, really interesting um, experience for me. Um, and uh, she told this story once, there's a whole group of teachers sitting there, her Wednesday night class I used to go to, and it was mostly educators. And she said she was once asked to give a, a course to uh, high-ranking army officers about Abraham Avinu. So she asked them to open their Tanachim to Abraham Bikibshan Ha'esh. I believe none of them were Datiim, or very few of them were Datiim. And they're flipping back and forth and back and forth looking for this story. And finally, one of them said, where's the Tanakh I learned from when I was a boy? It's like he wasn't there. It's the, I call it the most famous Bible story that doesn't appear in the Bible. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't exist. So that's really down to the sociology of Jewish education. Um, and, and there are different versions of this in the modern Orthodox community and in the um, Datilu Umi community. But, um, but yeah, that's how it happened. I think, I think that's how it happened. I think it's interesting what you say in terms of, uh, I think that the two-step approach at the moment is people learn, like you say, like um, Midrashim intertwined with Pesukim at an early stage. And then the habit is that the reaction for that once they get older is to say, well, now I don't want to learn Midrash again. Whereas really, I like what you're saying in terms of really the response should be, I need to go back to those Midrash. I mean, if I learn, then I'll get it. That will actually enhance my understanding of it more. That's right. I mean, one thing that we have to recognize is many, many Midrashim are interpretive in nature. There's a reason Rashi cites Midrashim in his, in his attempt to rec... I mean, Rashi's definition of Pshutoshal Mikra is Yishuv Mikraot, right? Basically reconciling difficulties in the biblical text. And there are places where the Midrash does that brilliantly. And um, Rashi doesn't cite Midrash because it's not interpretive. He cites it because very often it is highly interpretive. It recognizes a problem in the text and it comes up with a solution. So um, the problem is we should be professionalizing Jewish education. We should be spending more money on teaching teachers. And we should give teachers a real grounding in how to learn Midrash. Because you can't cut your, you can't dismiss a whole chunk of the body of work of Chazal and expect your students to have respect for Chazal in anything else. You have to show them how sophisticated and how beautiful it is, yeah. Yeah. and how much it can enhance their their spiritual um, connection to Torah, to God, and to to everything they need to be to be good Jews. Yeah. I mean, talking about interpretive midrashim, so you mentioned before that one of the literary approaches or styles of midrash is hyperbole. So when we're presented with a midrash that's obviously, you know, quite clearly implausible or fantastical, whatever word we want to use, like how do we understand that? Do we take it literally? What do we do with that? Like how do we approach it? 
So again, something about the um, about intellectual Jewish intellectual history, starting already in the period of the Gaonim, um, they understood that Chazal did not meant these uh, hyperbolic kind of fantastical statements to be taken literally. And um, the Gaonim talk about this uh, among, you know, among the, that starts already with the Gaonim, the discussion of, you know, Chazal were, did not mean you to take this literally, but uh, probably the champion of the clear statement about how one is supposed to take these fantastical midrashim is the Rambam. Right, and he talks about this in, in the Mora, and he talks about it in, in his Haktamala Perk Felek, his Perush Lamishnayot. And uh, basically, I, uh, I checked this with somebody, um, a, a very big Talmud Chacham, and I said, Are there any Rishonim who say, um, who say that one should take these Midrashim literally? And he said, Yeah, there's one. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, the Rishonim Pechad follow the Shita of the Rambam. So something happened between the Rishonim and the Achronim, especially the later Achronim, and I think I have an explanation for that as well, where you have to believe that Vashi had a tailoring or not because. The Rishonim, the Rishonim all understood that you have to unpack the statement Vashi had a tail. Right, not you have to figure out what it means. You have to, you know, um, you have to ask yourself why Chazal said it. You have to. By the way, if you look at the source that says Vashti had a tail, it may also appear in Targum Sheni, but in the Gemara Masachet Megillah, it's in parentheses, it's in brackets, and it's four or five words. You know that the Hamalach Gabriel came down and affixed a tail onto Vashti. So that's another thing. People say, well, the Midrash says X, Y, or Z. And sometimes I'm mean, and I say things like, well, I don't think it does. And they say, no, you know, the Midrash says that Leah Imenu said X, Y, or Z. And I say, where? And they say, it's in Bereshit Rabbah. We go to Bereshit Rabbah, and it's not there. It's something like it, maybe a little bit is there, but that's not there, you know. Um, I don't know if anybody would quote, well, actually, probably people do, would quote a suit with that kind of casual lack of respect, but probably there are people who do that too. I mean, you've already given us a lot to think about just in terms of you know, ed- educational uh, structures and, and, and so forth. But I suppose just to end on a, on a lighter note, um, if I could dare ask such a thing, uh, what, what, which is your favorite midrash? Um, you know, your, your favorite to learn, your favorite to teach, and, and why? Um, well, you know what my daughter always says? Uh, she says, whatever you're teaching at the moment is your favorite. And that is, there is some sense in which that is true. And I, periodically, I find myself saying, like, this is the most beautiful Perek in Tanakh, Yeches And then I teach something else. That's <laughs> the most beautiful Perek in Tanakh. Um, I think one of the most powerful midrashim, I, I'll give you two. I think two of the most powerful midrashim uh, for me to teach that were extremely transformative for me. One is in Breshi Rabbah, and it's about the question of why the story of Yehuda and Tamar is inserted into the middle of the um, Yosef narrative. And after a long analysis of the reasons for this, the 
Midrash makes a mind-blowing statement. If you like, I can send you the Makor. I can, I'd have to look it up. That the that explained to me something I had never understood. Now we all know there is no, uh, there is no cleaving to absolute chronology in Torah, in Tanakh. And, um, and that's a principle that the Parshanim take into account in their analyses. That's something that Chazal assume in all sorts of places, but nobody ever told me why. And um, the Midrash says, because it gives a whole bunch of examples of dyschronology. And then it says, and I'm paraphrasing, um, because to prove that the Torah is not fiction, because if it were written in pure, you know, strict chronological order, it would be fiction. And you say, again, a counterintuitive statement. There's an important perush on, um, on, on the Rabbah, on Midrash Rabbah, uh, by the name of Marzu. And he says something and it blew my mind. It changed my whole, my whole understanding. He says, and again, I'm paraphrasing. Chronology is only one way of organizing reality. The connections between reality or the world or events are far more complex than that. And only in fiction do you follow the order of events because you're writing something that didn't happen. If it's real and it's true, the connections are more complex. And again, I'm gonna riff off on that to say this. The reason the Torah Tanakh does not cleave to chronology as the organizing principle is because there are far more profound connections between events than have to do with what followed what. There's, there are questions of causality. There are questions of consequences. There are questions of reward and punishment. There are uh, questions of spiritual significance. And so the Torah, Tanakh, arranges or explains matters according to those principles and not strictly according to chronology because that's only one way to parse reality. And that, that just blew me away. That just totally blew me away. Aside from the fact that the Midrash itself is quite interesting in the way that it understands the connections between the Yehuda and Tamar's story on the one hand and the Yosef story on the other and why they're arranged in this way. I think the second Midrash that had a powerful, powerful, oh, I'm starting to think of more examples, but I'll, I'll control myself, I'll control myself. The second example that I would give is the, the Gemara in Sanhedrin that talks about David's tshuva for sinning with Bathsheba. Um, I, I don't want to say it makes me cry every time I read it because um, that wouldn't be true. But the first time I understood it, it made me cry. It's, it's incredibly profound and deep. It's about how, um, it's about how sin starts. What, what are the roots of sin? Like how does a person get into trouble? Uh, which has to do with a lack of internal honesty and how you fix it by facing pain. And um, Chazal got there way before Freud or Jung or Adler. I mean, like, way before. And it's beautiful. It's, it's a hard, hard piece of text. You have to really, you know, you have to read it more than once. It's not going to just leap out at you. You have to really break your head over it. 
you know, so those are the two I would, I would say. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I think if you, I mean, if you are able to send us the, uh, the Makora, then we can add that to the show notes on the podcast. So if anyone listening wants to read them themselves, they can find that as well. Um, but thank you so much uh, for taking the time um, to speak to us today. We knew when we were doing an episode of Midrash that we had to have you on, so we're really delighted that you're able to join us. And and of course, we encourage all of our listeners to um, read your book and soon to be books, um, and um, to where they can find more of your amazing Torah. So thank you, Simi, so much for joining us um, on the Quran Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you again to our guests today, Simi Peters and Rabbi Nathaniel Helfgott. I think it was really interesting to hear the things that they had to say um, about how we can view Midrash um, and Pesukim or Peshut HaShem Mikra um, and definitely gave us a lot to think about in terms of how we look at Midrashim, how we should study Midrashim um, and how we should um, approach um, these difficult and possibly challenging uh, biblical texts. Alex, uh, if any of our listeners would like to reach us, how can they do so? They can be in touch um, via email, podcast at corinpub.com uh, or via any social media at Corin Publishers. Uh, we're there. We're usually very responsive. Um, if you'd like to make a purchase of uh, Rabbi Healthcott's book or any book from corinpub.com, uh, make sure to use promo code podcast at checkout and that will give you a very nice 10% discount. Until next time, this has been the Corin Podcast. Mm-hmm.